everybody, and welcome to the Ribosome Podcast. My name is Luke Roberts, and today we're speaking with Dr. Kevin Folta, a professor from the University of Florida and the host of the Talking Biotech Podcast. Dr. Folta, thanks for taking the time to talk to us. Sort of uh, first things first, since we're on this sort of never-ending global pandemic, or I guess depends who you ask. Some people say it's over. How are things down in Florida right now? Well, um, at the beginning of the edge of not as awful. Um, I think that there's still a lot of this, uh, the attitude is still bad. And the, the disregard for public health is still with us. And there's uh, pretty much rampant uh, non-compliance with uh, mask wearing vaccination and other public health measures. Um, it, it's a little bit disappointing because in many areas of the state, there still is really good concern for others and other places, not so much. And those are the folks we need to reach. It's it's sort of the same here as well. We have a little bit of that here in southern Alberta. It's just some people just, you know, are still continuing to hold out and it seems to be stretching this thing on. But it, it does seem like there's an end in sight. Well, they said that before, too. <laughs> I, to be fair, I've, I've said this a number of times myself. Well, it looks like we're coming out of this thing. And here we go again. Well, the thing that you have to think about the most is what is the next pandemic and these things are not done. And, you know, we had MERS, we had SARS, we had SARS-CoV-2. This is the one that grabbed a foothold and penetrated the most. Um, you know, MERS was much more fatal. But there were some interesting circumstances around SARS and around MERS that allowed them to be contained and rather quickly. They still had tremendous tolls, but they never got to the USA and, um, and Canada. So that uh, it didn't impact us so much, but the next one might. Uh, so this is something that's happened three times in the century. Yeah, starting starting to look a whole lot like a trend. Um, so hopefully the uh, you know the funding agencies are listening to this and put some more money into you know vaccine technology development and basic research. Um, and I know a lot of them do listen to this podcast, so I'll just you know we'll just make sure that they know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you know, you'll be dialing in and may consult us for additional feedback. Uh, yes, so. of course. With their 5G technology, they're probably picking it up as we're doing it. Well, there we go. Exactly. Now, I'm always interested in people's career paths. I think I, it's the first question I ask everybody other than how are you doing right now? Um, and now, I guess my, my question for everybody is because my path seemed pretty linear and it kind of just seemed like I kind of fell into everything I did. Like I was like, oh, I guess I'll do this. I guess I'll do that. Which sort of like you did an undergrad um, in biology at Northern Illinois University, and now you're a faculty member at the University of Florida. And so did that career path feel very linear to you? Did it feel like you were just sort of doing what came next naturally? Or did it, was it, did it feel like, do you look back at that and go, wow, I never, if you told me I was going to be here at the start, I never would have believed you. <laughs> yeah, it's a little bit of both. I think it's been linear with respect to the topic. I always knew that I would be in science and really appreciated genetics and interesting aspects of that since the beginning. And I've always been the beneficiary of good mentors who realized maybe I had a little bit of a spark. And uh, the folks who saw me washing dishes with uh, impunity and, <laughs> and doing a good job with things that around you know basic lab maintenance and stuff, that they threw me a project and saw me fall in love with the research. Um, I've had those opportunities and always grateful for those. And I had good advisors that steered me out of industry, you know, that suggested that maybe that wasn't the path for me. Mm -hmm. And opportunities that were really sweet, but um, glad I didn't take them. 
So, and then at the University of Florida, I mean, I never would have predicted being in Florida. I never would have been predicted being at the University of and in this department. It's kind of the all-star team. And since the day I joined, I've always felt like the ninth place batter who was there, <laughs> you know, uh, who got, 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 got to pick up the bat in the ninth inning. Um, just because it's, I really have a lot of respect for the folks I work with. Yeah, just hoping that uh, they can get it done before you're up on the lineup then, eh? That's what. <laughs> well, what's cool is, is that even in my uh, my position, I'm hitting home runs and things are looking really good. And it's been really good with respect to our research for going on 19 years now. So we've got a really, really strong publication record out of this institution. And uh, it's it's been, things are always changing, and it, 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 which has been really exciting. Yeah. And now it's been a few years since I saw you give a research talk, but when you were here at the University of Lethbridge, you gave a talk about um, some interesting work that you were doing um, with random RNA sequences and the effect that it was having on, I guess, just you're mostly looking at phenotypes and then trying to tie it to genotypes later. Um, Could you give us just a little update on how that's going? Yeah, this is a project they always wanted to do is if you could transform any organism with just random information and with but not totally random mm-hmm. um, a codon and a stop codon so all the information to start and stop a genetic sequence and kind of muddled information in the middle that wouldn't introduce stop codons so just for folks who aren't scientists who are listening it's like every story starts with once upon a time and ends with happily ever after right mm-hmm. and through random words in the middle once in a while, you tell a cool story, yeah. and pretty rare. And this is the same with biology. But if we could transform enough organisms with our molecular once upon a time and happily ever after with nonsense in the middle, once in a while, that nonsense might mean something and change the way biology works. And that project is super cool and, and coming up a lot of great results. Sort of analogous to the, uh, the old adage of, if you put enough monkeys with typewriters in a room, eventually you'll get the works of Shakespeare typed out. You know, you throw enough random RNA sequences at these plants, eventually, you know, you get the next beat. I don't know what I don't know what you get, but who knows? Well, what, you, what you get predominantly is plant death. I would <laughs> yep. you come up with sequences that are toxic to the cell for one reason or another, and that's what's so intriguing. That in a world that is hurting for new, safe, environmentally friendly herbicides, could this be a basis of identifying new vulnerabilities and places where we could design a molecule that would stick in the gears of the biology and then grind it to a halt? It seems like that's something that we can probably do very well. Yeah, that's something I hadn't considered. It's it's nice that there's a project where even you know if it does something cool you're like great we found something cool if it kills the plant you go cool maybe i can also kill plants with this and so yeah it's cool but the problem is studying death is a really lousy phenotype because once you can't do much with it once it's dead yeah Uh, you look at the genes that change from the living plant to the dead plant and the answer is all of them (laughs) yeah really hard to find uh to figure out what's going on so you have to find that you're start to incorporate other tools like regulated promoters and uh, inducible promoters. But uh, hopefully we'll get to the bottom of it because we have some good candidates. Very interesting. And sort of just on the topic of plants, um, one of the things that you've done that I think maybe would have the most reach to our audience here is your work on strawberries. You know, everybody's eating a strawberry. 
you know, and whether or not they've had a good strawberry. Everybody's had a bad strawberry. Um, and obviously, you played a hand in sequencing um, the strawberry genome. And um, the last we spoke, you were doing a lot of work to sort of look for, not necessarily selecting for size and for color, the things that your supermarkets are after, but actual, you know, the flavor and returning those sort of things. Is that, um, I guess, one, how did you get involved in the, the, how do you decide one day, I guess I'll sequence the genome of a strawberry. And, you know, two, how do you now bring that passion to selecting for flavor and bringing these things back into uh, fruits and vegetables opposed to selecting for size and marketability, I guess you would call it. Well, sequencing a strawberry genome was either a really good or a really bad idea. <laughs> Actually, it's both. Um, and so back when I started here, my position was started by the strawberry growers who lobbied Congress to get somebody who could uh, support one of the state's critical industries with a genomics position. And mm -hmm. so that's why I hired. I didn't know much about strawberries when I started here. The joke at the time was, um, if I'm going to have to work on strawberries, I'm going to need some strawberry trees. Yeah. Um, that was, uh, so we got going in this, and at the time, there was no genetic sequence. So if you wanted to improve strawberries using genetic tools, just marker-assisted breeding, um, other simple tools like that, you needed some genetic sequence. And we had 58 sequences in the public database that were short and probably wrong. And that was just what was there when I started. Mm -hmm immediately started to build a database of information of genetics from strawberry. And in probably 2007, 2008, when genome sequencing was really at its begin of its beginning of the explosion, mm -hmm. the question was to do strawberry because the woodland strawberry, one of the wild ones, is diploid. It has a very tiny genome. Mm -hmm. uh, for, like genomes, 240 megabases, and that's pretty small. Uh, strawberry, peach, pretty dinky genome. So we started to think this is a great system to sequence. We can transform it. We have great connection with the strawberry of commerce. And this makes a lot of sense. The problem is the strawberry that's commercial is an octoploid. So you have four independent Thanks. genomes that segregate independently. So sequencing that was out of the question. We finished the easy one that was published in February of 2011. So it's, it was the 12th genome sequence and the first by entirely de novo sequencing um, of a higher organism. I mean, super cool. And it's yeah, as much as genome sequencing has exploded and become now it's like it, it's sort of a routine thing, especially in the bacterial sort of research field where you go, you can get a genome sequenced pretty darn cheap. You know, it's amazing to think how easy it is now you know i put easy and you know i'm putting i'm doing air quotes no one can see it but i'm doing air quotes how easy it is now compared to what it was before they had much the technology is advanced and how cheap and available it's become um really this sort of increase in sequencing you know is credited to you know a lot of the nucleic acid work that's going on now and how successful it is because all of that research was really enabled by this technology becoming incredibly cheap yeah, you know, you're talking to a guy who sequenced 10 KB of DNA over the course of a summer in each direction. And yeah. and loaded uh, the big old slab gels and ran, you know, ran them forever and read the A, G, 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 C, T, D into a little tiny pocket uh, recorder and then would listen to it and type it into the computer. I mean, you know, this, this, this isn't your grandpa's sequencing anymore. <laughs> yeah, and that's, you know, a good... 
you know, this is sort of that, you know, on my hill, we sequence things, you know, uphill both ways, you know, back, you know, and it, it's, uh, it's interesting because it's, I, I came about just after, you know, that um, was sort of phasing out where people were sequencing stuff by hand. And then I'm the, the next generation where companies were starting to do it for, you know, it was much cheaper to do it with a company now. And so sometimes going back and looking at that, you're just amazed at how much perseverance and how, you know, incredibly time consuming it was just in pure labor. Well, the art of doing it, the yeah. pouring a 0.4 millimeter thick polyacrylamide gel with zero bubbles. And this is, this is for those who don't know this, you put, you pour this 0.4 millimeter matrix between two glass plates that are about three feet by two feet and held together by tape or clips or whatever. And the acrylamide can't leak out and it's a neurotoxin and it was good times. Yeah, I guess for for the non-scientists listening, I know my mom listens. Hi, mom. Um, it's basically like putting, you know, if you had to make a windshield out of Jello, would be sort of a functional equivalent for these gels at, at the scale that we're just talking here and the precision that you'd need to do. They'd have to, you know, you'd be putting these in cars. You couldn't just be doing this for fun. And so it was it was a, a real undertaking back then. And I can appreciate it. I've seen some pretty big gels cast, but nothing quite that large here. Obviously, in addition to all of your stuff in academia, one of the biggest uh, things that you're known for, actually how I came to know you, is that uh, through your science communication. I've been listening to your podcast, the Talking Biotech podcast, for years. Um, and I know that it's six, almost seven years now. I think, um, and over 1.5 million downloads I saw you tweeting about recently, which is a huge congratulations, a massive undertaking. And just, I wanted to understand a little bit about how did you, how does one decide to do a podcast? And yeah, I mean, you got in on it early. You know, you were doing a podcast, you know, now everybody, look at me, I, every, I'm everyone and their dog. I've got a podcast. How did, um, how did you get it? How did you see, did you, is this something you saw as like, you know, were you a visionary or was it something you were just doing for fun and podcasts suddenly became quite popular and you rode that wave serendipitously? Well, I love science media and mm -hmm. I'm always uh, submitting articles and speaking in public forums, uh, doing what I could with blogging, you know, at the time, mm -hmm. always loved that stuff. I took every opportunity to grab a microphone or a spotlight when I could to talk about either my research or, uh, the public interface with science. Those were my big passions. Um, I should have done podcasting starting in 2006, uh, but uh, I thought about it and talked to people about it. And the problem was I have a lot of obligations for work and people are, it's the problem of if you do a good job, people want you to do more of it. Right. And I always have a thousand things on my plate to do and people are asking me, can you review this grant for National Science Foundation or review this grant for NASA or uh, help us find you know, citations for this paper we're going to submit or write this grant or always something. Mm -hmm. And it'd be very hard for me to justify doing a podcast and blowing off these other professional obligations, even though some people have kids and stuff and they do that. OK, I don't have those pressures. But people were would get real prickly with, well, you have time to do a dumb podcast, right? Right. So the first thing I did, I did with a pseudonym. And I did it with a funny voice. And I tried to do it as a parody of the Art Bell show, which used to be on in the middle of the night about Bigfoot and psychics and things. And that ended up backfiring because um, folks who well, I ended up going on I ended up going on a Joe Rogan podcast as me. 
And he said at the end, you know, you really need to be doing a podcast. I go, I know, I do, it's, uh, but I do, and but I can't tell you about it. <laughs> totally, here I had his megaphone, and I could have had a lot of uh, a lot of, of uh, exposure to the work, right? Mm-hmm. But um, eventually had to do it as myself since uh, June of 2015, I believe is correct. Mm-hmm. 14, but it, whatever it was. It'll be, uh, it'll be, it was six years in this, six complete years this June. So it must've been 14, right? I don't know. I don't do math. Not anymore. That's what grad students are for. And so speaking of, um, one thing I'd like to ask people at various stages in their career, because it's always interesting. Everyone has different perspectives. You being a PI and having done so much science communication, um, do you have sort of textbook advice for young scientists or do you have anything that you think if, if young people are getting into the sciences and they want to do science communication or they want to just get into the sciences at all, what sort of advice do you have for them as they're starting their careers here? Yeah, start out um, with uh, the trilogy. <laughs> so going back to medieval uh, training in, in uh, after, you know, education, mm-hmm. both learned uh, logic, rhetoric, and, and math, arithmetic, and that those three things formed your core, that you learn how to think, how to apply the thinking, and then the basic fundamentals of math that I just couldn't do. Uh, I'm, I'm really against the idea of specializing. If people saying in high school, I want to be a vet, so I just want to take animal science. I think that there's a very strong need to be able to uh, communicate your science. So learning how to write and speak, learning foreign language, uh, especially these days, Chinese carry you a long way. Um, the idea of uh, being being a solid in all of your sciences at a fundamental level, mm-hmm. knowing physics at the same time as biology, uh, those things will carry you for computer coding being able to write in a, in a number of languages or at least be able to speak to those who do. And so you can get the most modern computational tools applied to your biological questions. Uh, those, that's the best advice right now. I think that's very good advice. And I find myself often wishing I had done some sort of computational or coding type of thing. You know, and I know it's never too late, you know, and eventually I'll, I'll, I'll have the time to go back and do that. But I think that's something we all say. But with some of the most prolific scientists, even in, in, in the biochemistry world, the RNA world where I'm from, are those that have crossed over from another discipline, have brought, say, physics, and have used that to really help in the structural determination of biomolecules. You know, take the things they learned in one field and say, I could, you know, and they've revolutionized some of the knowledge that we've had. Um, but on the same handle, you know, if you don't know anything about biology, how do you know if, if, if you don't have any sort of way to back up the things that you're finding? There's no really way to say that it's not all just, you know, you could spend your entire life solving something no one cares about or doing it backwards, you know. Um, and so I think that's very, very good advice. I guess on, on the tail of our discussion about, you know, advice from scientists and academia and things like that, I always ask everybody, if you could change one thing about academia, what could it be? What, what would you, you know, you snap your fingers tomorrow, things are different. Um, what... And, you know, you don't have to have one and, you know, these don't have to be small changes either. I guess if you want to change your office or something, you can ask for that now. But um, if, if, if these are larger scale problems, um, is there something that immediately jumps to mind for you there? Um, I, I think I, I would I would 
So one major thing I would do is change the way that we recognize faculty for contributions in communication. And rather than penalizing the folks who stick their necks out to have public discussions um, and admonishing them for doing it <laughs> and winning awards in those areas, it might be good to have support for those folks to do it and actually look at them as an asset rather than a liability. It's bad because it discourages uh, new people from getting involved. They don't reward it in the tenure and promotion system typically, except when it's involved with university extension, which is good. Um, but we need to have better support and recognition for the people who are doing good science and communicating good science and using the most powerful methods to do it. No, I think that's, I think that's true. And I find the university doesn't do, and I say the university, I mean academia, they don't find a good metric for measuring and recognizing any contribution outside of a publication or research dollars. You know, there's a lot of great scientists who do fantastic work, you know, like yourself in science outreach, uh, Dr. Uta Kota here. Uh, oh, she was here at the U of L, now she's at the University of Winnipeg. Um, in doing community outreach to young people for science and things like that, or even just um, things on you know equity, diversity, and inclusion, how people are trying to make science more inclusive, more diverse, you know, more equitable. How is any of you know? How are you expected to do any of that if every minute you're doing it, you're technically being penalized for not writing another grant or not publishing another paper? And so you either have to have a real passion for it and sort of buck the system, whereas all the system is telling you, you know, sort of rigged against you if you spend too much time doing it, unfortunately. Mm -hmm. well, well, so you, well the, the, the other move is just to say, screw it, I'm not doing it in the system. Mm -hmm. And that's kind of how I am. I mean, I, I, I'm going to take my ball and go home. <laughs> <laughs> I'll check the boxes at my work and I'll do the things I'm supposed to do, be a good faculty member and contribute to the mission. But um, the things that are extracurriculars that, um, that if, if I'm not going to get credit for, I don't want them getting credit for it either. You know, uh, I would, I'm going to do these things as independent work, and that's it's been a big deal here. I mean, it's I've been technically banned from it so by the administration, and and since that is the case, then I'm going to do really beautiful work elsewhere and just hang my hat on it and stick the FOLTA flag in it rather than the university flag. And that's fine. You know, that's the way they want it. I disagree with that. But um, it's working out really well for me in a lot of ways. Mm -hmm. And just since we, we, we've been talking about a little bit, communicating science. Everybody who's a scientist has sort of had to do this during this global pandemic. Because everybody who's reading about, you know, these new mRNA vaccines, who's reading about COVID, suddenly... Suddenly, it's a really cool time to be a scientist because, you know, I've had way more discussions at, you know, the small family gatherings and stuff I've been able to have than I've had maybe in a lifetime, you know, and they go, oh, science, science, good, great. Now it's, hey, so what do you think about this? What do you think about that? Because you've developed that trust. And one thing I wanted to ask you about, because you've got a lot of experience, is communicating that information effectively because we've all got some holdouts. We've all got some friends, some family members who are still either on the fence or staunchly in the other camp about these sort of, you know, the new COVID vaccines or science in general. What is the approach that you take for communicating science to individuals sort of one-on-one? -on -one? Well, your first trick is you got to know your audience. 
And whether you're dealing with someone who is hesitant or whether someone who is completely against. The folks who are completely against uh, anything, whether it's genetic engineering, whether it's COVID vaccines, whether it's climate science, whatever. Um, the issue is, is that that becomes part of their identity. It's who they are. Mm -hmm. It clusters they run with in social media. And they don't have that anymore. If they suddenly get vaccinated, they're not in that club. So it's part of, uh, of, of in-group mentality. It's a part of uh, trusting that community. And to be part of that community, you have to uh, dig in against vaccination. You're not going to change them. You should use them as a foil in social media by approaching them kindly and saying, please help me understand your position. Because when you do that and you listen to their position or you write about, you know, they write about their position, you write about yours, you start to influence this other group who are the folks in the middle who are just wondering who to trust. Mm -hmm. They have concerns. They feel their concerns are 100% legit. They have their trusted sources, uh, but they're still torn about it. And so our job as scientists is to participate in those public conversations, even with difficult people, to demonstrate that we are the ones who should be trusted entities. And, and that is really critical, and everybody needs to do it. No, I think that's good advice because, yeah, you, you find sort of, if you find somebody who's, like you mentioned, sort of made this part of their personality, you know, you guys can yell at each other all day, but you're sort of going to fall on deaf ears. But converting those hesitant, on-the-fence type people, you know, is, is something that you can do. And even if it does involve through primarily engaging, you know, the strict, you know, the other camp, it um, it is still important. And I find, you know, it... It's important to talk about it and keep doing it, even though sometimes you might be like, well, what's the point? I'm tired, I've done all of this. But, you know, at the end of the day with public safety on the line, you know, in the future of, you know, everything because biology, you know, the next big revolution, right? Is, is we're right on the cusp of everything starting to be real Star Trek-y in terms of, you know, human health and technology and stuff. And so it's... Uh, people being science literate and being able to communicate these ideas are, I think are probably going to be important more so now than ever. Um, and I think, you know, people might be a little hesitant because everyone sort of missed the boat on genetically engineered, uh, sort of crops. All the scientists, you know, came up with it. It was a, you know, it was fantastic. It helped feed the world. And then now people say, well, I don't want that in my food and you say, well, good luck. It's everywhere. It's already everywhere because it was such a good idea and it worked so well. You couldn't throw a stone and hit, a non-genetically engineered crop here in Southern Alberta. They're all genetically engineered. You know, it's not that someone is, you know, cackling over a cob of corn and doing something terrible. It's just, and I, my favorites are looking at old pictures. They say, well, this is what corn used to look like. And you go, well, that sucks. <laughs> yeah, that's why we don't grow that anymore. <laughs> now, how could you feed anybody on this? And so I, yeah, I think I went on a bit of a tangent there, but just to get back to what we were talking about, I think, yeah, being able to, you know, communicate that effectively, especially for this next wave of, you know, technologies is going to be very important, um, especially for, I guess, our own sanity. That's true. It had, but that's been true with every new technology that's come along, whether it was refrigeration, automobiles, um, you know, there's always been pushback. Very true. And and, but when that happens, it's a question of how do you convert the folks in the middle, knowing that science always wins and science will eventually convert the bad guys, whether it's because they die off or they just get tired of, of arguing against reality. 
the folks in the middle are the ones that make change happen fastest because the, the ones on the ends, again, you're never going to change them easily. The ones in the middle, you can change. And it really is just a question of continuing to engage them with um, civil conversation, not based on facts, but based on values and based upon common shared concerns and having those conversations. Um, they don't buy your uh, perspective as a scientist because of the data you show them. They buy your perspective as a scientist because of why you do what you do and mm. what you're motivated. And so, I mean, I just want to thank you again um, for taking the time to talk to us. Um, for everybody else, this is the second time we've recorded because I messed up the auto real bad the first time. And so we really appreciate um, you taking the time to come back again. I think it truly speaks to how much you care about it and how much, you know, how important you feel it is. And so if people want to find you, how can they get in touch? Well, um, Twitter is great. It's at Kevin Folta, K-E-V-I-N-F-O-L-T-A. I also am uh, at kevinfolta.com, which is uh, kind of my personal website, not associated with the university, where it talks a lot about the things I do for communications. And uh, and then um, what else? I guess uh, also uh, I have a blog called Illumination 2.0. And the most important part is uh, talk podcast which is at talkingbiotechpodcast.com and uh really interesting guests i just adore the guests the host is okay but the guests are fantastic they're the ones that make it happen so i uh, really, really appreciate that you listen and um hope more folks dial in yep i mean if you've found our podcast somehow in the wrong order you should have started at the talking biotech podcast and maybe made your way here um, but yeah, if, if you're not listening to that, I would, I can highly recommend it. It's very interesting. It's completely accessible for the non-scientists. There's plenty of topics that are covered. Um, you find yourself in science, you get to know a whole lot about a whole little, it's very niche. And so there's a ton of topics that are covered with regards to food safety, agriculture, you know, medicine, everything that I find extremely accessible. Um, and I think, it, you know, and, you know, I, I, I tend to disagree. I think the host is pretty all right as well. But that's just my opinion. Okay. Well, well, we'll see. You know, it, we, we did have a couple of reviews. Uh, 283, we got a three-star and a four-star. And one of them didn't like that I, did, that I was bad-mouthing UFOs. <laughs> I'll take it. Yeah. I mean, can't win them all. That's that other camp we were talking about. Yeah. So, all right. Thanks so much. Thank you. Thank you so much, Dr. Folta. Dr. Kevin Folta is a professor at the University of Florida and the host of the Talking Biotech podcast. If you have comments or suggestions, write to us. Our email is theribosomepodcast at gmail.com or message us on Twitter at theribosomepodcast. The show is produced by Leanna Boras, Simon Hoser, Malakozata Rosalska, and myself, Luke Roberts. Thanks so much for joining us. Keep your bench clean and your RNA pure.